Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. So back over the summer, we read through the book of Romans, which is arguably the most historically influential book of the New Testament. And so it makes some sense that here in the fall, we're going to spend time in Exodus, arguably the most historically significant book of the Old Testament. Now, we won't read every single verse of Exodus. It's a long book. So we're going to focus almost all of our attention on the one event that gives the book its name. That event is when God, with a mighty hand, freed his chosen people from captivity in Egypt. Now, this event, the Exodus, shaped the imagination of God's people in the Old Testament, even those who weren't alive when it happened. Israelites regularly looked back at the Exodus as the most spectacular example of God's power, the most obvious example of God's unique love for them in their people's history. Songs were sung about it. Psalms were written about it. Lessons were taught about it. Much later, when the prophet Isaiah warned God's people about the exile they would soon experience in Babylon, Isaiah cited the Exodus as a reminder that their captivity wouldn't last forever. But the Exodus carried over into the New Testament as well. We just took communion, which originally came from Jesus' teaching on the Passover meal the night he was betrayed by Judas. And the Passover meal commemorates, you guessed it, the Exodus. And even after Jesus' death and resurrection... His disciples often looked back on the Exodus. They featured it in some of their earliest sermons in the book of Acts. They looked at the Exodus in a new way through the lens of Christ. And then finally, the Exodus has shaped the imaginations of people long after Scripture. Christian pilgrims who came to America fleeing English rule and seeking religious freedom often read their own experiences into the story of the Exodus. Black Christians suffering under slavery and then segregation in the American South often turn to the Exodus to keep their hopes for justice and deliverance alive. Latin American Christians have read the Exodus as they fought against corrupt governments. And perhaps most powerfully, Jews in Nazi concentration camps knew the story of the Exodus, and they cried out to God for rescue, just like their ancestors before them in Egypt. Now again, all of the Bible is God's inspired word, but few scriptural events stick out more in the pages of history and in the pages of scripture than the Exodus. But before we begin reading the story ourselves, we need to do a little bit of background work. So who exactly are these people locked in Egyptian chains? And how in the world did they get here to begin with? And what lessons can we possibly learn about God from seeing the Israelite story? Well, for that all stuff, we have to go back to a few pages to the end of the book of Genesis. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. It'll be really easy to flip back to Genesis from there. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read any further, let's pray. 
Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have to get together and worship you. New faces, old faces. Father, again, for some reason that we might not even fully comprehend, you have brought us here in this place today. And so I pray that you would accomplish your will in our hearts and our minds and our lives and that we would worship you as is fit on a Sunday morning. Father, thank you again for these people, uh, these different experiences, different backgrounds, different things they bring with them. Father, again, we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ to worship you. And we have Christ in common in spite of all of our differences. And so, Father, thank you for this weekly time to worship you, to focus our hearts, focus our minds, read from your word, be reminded of the cross. And, Father, again, I just pray that our time together today would be beneficial for us and glorifying to you. Again, we love you, we praise you, we give you all the glory because you deserve all the glory. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the Israelites, or as they're sometimes called in the book of Exodus, the Hebrews, are biological descendants of Abraham. And in the book of Genesis, Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac then had a son named Jacob. And Jacob then had a son named Joseph, along with a whole bunch of other sons. And Jacob was not shy about the fact that Joseph was his favorite. And as you might expect, Joseph's brothers didn't take too kindly to this fact. So the brothers sold Joseph into slavery and convinced their father that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. But then through an unlikely chain of events that can only be described as God's providence, which included time as a servant in an Egyptian official's house, time in jail, and a God-given gift of interpreting dreams, through all of these events, Joseph wound up second in command in Egypt. And then one day in the midst of an awful famine, Jacob sent his remaining sons to Egypt in search of food. And who do you think they would run into? They ran into Joseph. So eventually Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers. Their relationships are mended. And Jacob and the rest of the Israelites move to Egypt. So at this point, everything looks pretty good. The Pharaoh of Joseph's day thinks so highly of Joseph that he welcomes the Israelites to Egypt with open arms. They settle in Goshen, which is some of the finest land Pharaoh could offer. The first few verses of Exodus tell us that the Israelites flourished in Egypt, even after Joseph is long gone. Exodus chapter 1 verse 7 says, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. However, at the end of Genesis, we're given several reminders that Egypt, as great as it was during that temporary season of need in the famine, Egypt was never meant to be the Israelites' permanent home. In Genesis 48, verse 21, Jacob reminds Joseph that one day God will bring the Israelites back again to the land of their fathers. On his deathbed in Genesis 49, Jacob insists that when he dies, he should be buried in Canaan, 
the promised land, not Egypt. When Joseph dies in Genesis 50, verse 24, he tells his brothers that God will visit them and will bring them up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph makes his brothers swear that he too will be buried in Canaan, not Egypt, just like his father. God had promised Abraham that he would have countless descendants, that they would become a great nation, that they would have a unique covenantal relationship with God, and that they would have their own land, not Egypt, to call home. That's when we go to Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That verse is the turning point between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. There's a new king in Egypt, a new sheriff in town who has no respect for Joseph's past contributions to their nation. And he doesn't think very highly of these foreigners who are filling Egypt. Pharaoh even worries that if the Egyptians aren't careful, these Hebrews could end up outnumbering them. And someday they might even overtake them. Pharaoh grows concerned that the parasite could destroy the host, the Hebrews being the parasite and Egypt being the host. So Pharaoh starts plotting. He thinks of ways to slow the Hebrews' growth and end their flourishing. Plan A is slavery. Verse 11 says the Hebrews were assigned taskmasters who afflicted them with heavy burdens. In verses 13 and 14, we read that the Hebrew slaves were treated ruthlessly. Their lives were made bitter with hard service. However, Pharaoh's plan didn't work. The more the Hebrews were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they flourished. Because I suppose when all your days are terrible, you might as well make the most of your nights. So Pharaoh comes up with another plan, plan B, one even worse than slavery. He commands the Hebrew midwives to kill Israelite baby boys when they're born. However, out of their fear of God, these Hebrew midwives refuse to kill those babies. They come up with a little fib of sorts that may be kind of true, but also might be a convenient out. And God rewarded the midwives for their obedience. Perhaps those midwives knew something that many in our culture today have forgotten that we need to remember. But then finally, Pharaoh comes up with a third idea to address this Hebrew problem. And this one is by far the most brutal and desperate of them all. He commands all of his people, not just the midwives, all of his people. To throw any Israelite baby boys they see into the Nile River to drown. Pharaoh's command is nothing short of attempted genocide. So times have changed in Egypt since the days of Jacob and Joseph. The descendants of those Israelites who were once welcomed, embraced, are being oppressed, abused, and even exterminated. So at this point, you couldn't blame an Israelite. 
Someone who may have grown up hearing all those old stories about God's unique love for them. All those old promises about God's plans to bless the whole world through them. All the old tales about God setting aside a land flowing with milk and honey, especially for them. Well, you couldn't blame that Israelite for wondering if those old stories, those old promises, those old tales about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all lies. Unless, of course, something changes. And something needs to change fast. Unless God steps in and takes some kind of action. And we see that start in chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Again, that's in response to Pharaoh's policy about what should happen to Hebrew baby boys. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So the story of Moses' first three months of life is unlikely, to say the least. I mean, how horrible do circumstances have to be for a mother to decide that putting her newborn in a basket by a crocodile-infested river is a viable option? That tells you how horrible things were in Egypt for the Hebrews. And how in the world did she and her daughter hatch this scheme of theirs to secretly save Moses' life? And what are the chances that, of all people, Pharaoh's daughter is the one to find that baby? And even further than that, what are the chances that she would have compassion and pity on him when her own father, Moses's kind of sort of grandfather, would rather see him drown? Everything just seems to fall into place a little too perfectly for this to be a mere series of coincidences or a sheer stroke of luck. And, you know, that's the whole point. It's not a series of coincidences. It's not a stroke of luck. The only explanation for Moses' survival is that God, yes, that God that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph believed in, that God is up to something. He's finally taking action. 
Now, Moses' path from the side of the river to leader of God's people wouldn't exactly be a straight line. He's raised in Pharaoh's house, but flees the country after killing an Egyptian, beating a Hebrew slave. Because apparently, you can take the man out of the Hebrews, but you can't take the Hebrew out of the man. And then at the age of 40, Moses settles in the land of Midian, gets married, and has a couple kids. It seems that after the unlikely beginnings of his life, Moses is finally settling down. And it's safe to assume that he has no intention of ever going back to Egypt. But like we said, God had other plans. And we see those plans in chapter 2, starting in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God had not forgotten about those Israelites. Even after all these years, he still remembered his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those promises didn't end with the Israelites subject to inhumane forms of population control, suffering heavy burdens under ruthless taskmasters, and wasting away in a foreign land forever. That's not how the plan ends. God heard their groaning, God saw them, and God knew. So God takes action. And maybe that baby that we read about, that man Moses, the one who never should have made it past three months old, the one whose name sounds like drawn out of water, maybe, just maybe, God can use that baby. God can use that man. To draw his people out of Egypt. Now we'll certainly learn more as the story progresses in the weeks ahead. But what lessons might we learn from just the two chapters that we've read today? Well, I think we get a few. Number one, this story teaches us something about God's sovereignty. And really this theme goes all the way back to the end of Genesis. Especially the story of Joseph. Again, what are the odds of all those twists and turns that ended up with Joseph in Egypt? What are the odds that Joseph would meet all the right people in all the right places at all the right times to ascend to Pharaoh's right hand? And what are the odds that a famine would send, of all people, his treacherous brothers to knock on his front door and eventually lead the Israelites to settle in Egypt? In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph seems to be clued in to the sovereignty of God. He explicitly says that what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. To preserve the lives of Abraham's descendants. To keep the promise going. In Joseph's mind, God was in it every step of the way. No coincidences. No strokes of luck, but the sovereignty of God. And it certainly seems that the sovereign God of Genesis is up to his old tricks again 
in the book of Exodus. And even more specifically, we learn from this story today that the sovereign God of Scripture works out, accomplishes, and enacts his plans and his purposes through people. Even the most unlikely, the most unwitting people. God can work out his plans through doting fathers, jealous siblings, traveling slave traders, desperate housewives, languishing jailbirds, and a severe famine in the book of Genesis. And he can accomplish his purposes through two nameless but courageous and righteously disobedient midwives. He can accomplish his plans and purposes through a loving mother and an opportunistic sister. He can work them out through a compassionate and merciful daughter of Pharaoh. In Acts chapter 4, long after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter preaches that God can even work out his plans to save sinners through a traitor like Judas, rebellious religious leaders, Restless crowds, the hardened Herod and the cowardly Pilate, the ones who crucified Jesus. In his wisdom, in his power, in his majesty, the God that we worship, who is the same God of Genesis and Exodus today, that God can use you, can use me, can use the people around you in this room and the people you meet on the street to accomplish his purposes in far bigger and grander ways than we can possibly wrap our minds around. He is a sovereign God, and he is worthy of our worship. Another lesson we learn in this story is that God is faithful to his promises, and he loves his people. He heard the Israelites' cries back then. And it's good for us to remember that he hears our cries today. In Romans 8, verses 26 and 27, the Apostle Paul reminds us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in our sufferings and weaknesses. Those moments, those seasons, when we don't even know how or what to pray. In verse 34, Paul reminds us that Jesus Christ himself is sitting at God's right hand, interceding with the Father on our behalf, right now. And then right in between those two passages, Paul says in verse 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Which, when you read it and think about it, sounds an awful awful lot like Genesis 50-20. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And that's people like you and people like me. Now, of course, it's true that while God is faithful to his promises, and while God does hear our cries, that does not necessarily mean that we'll always get the exact answers, always get the exact solutions we want at the moment we want them. Like the Israelites, at times we may be tempted to think that God has forgotten us. We may wonder if he ever really cared at all. Those moments could come through a sudden tragedy that rocks your world, or a more slow, methodical, unrelenting suffering that just leaves you numb. We may not like our circumstances. We don't have to. We may be afflicted with heavy burdens. Our lives may be bitter. 
We may wish that God would hurry up and do something. But all along we know this, that God has not forgotten us. God hears us. God sees us. And God knows. And if you ever find yourself doubting these things, God's sovereignty, his faithfulness, his love, you can look back to Egypt. You can look back to the Exodus. But even better, look to Jerusalem and look to the cross. The two chapters we read today subtly point our eyes ahead to the one who died there for the sins of mankind, Jesus Christ. Like Moses, Jesus' early life was unlikely. Moses floating in a basket, Jesus being worshipped in a manger. Like Moses, Jesus' life was in danger from the very get-go by a bloodthirsty tyrant. In Moses' case, it was Pharaoh. In Jesus' case, it was Herod, killing baby boys in Bethlehem. And ironically, the thing that was supposed to kill Moses, the Nile River, God used as Moses' means of survival. And the thing that actually succeeded in killing Jesus, the cross, God used for our eternal life, and death did not hold him. This is the God we worship, a God who is sovereign beyond our full comprehension, a God who is faithful to his promises, and a God who hears his people's cries. It was true of the Israelites in Egypt, and it's true for us as well. And it's true for us because of the cross that Jesus died on for our sins. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for scripture, this record of what you've done in the past that tells us so much about who you are, your character, your desires, your plans. Father, thank you for these stories that aren't just inspirational tales. They aren't just pithy memories. They aren't just fairy tales at all. But they are stories, real stories of your workings throughout history. Real stories of your power and your splendor and your majesty seen in our world. And so, Father, I pray that as we read this old story about a very different group of people in a very different place and a very different set of circumstances than we're in, I pray that we would still learn about your character, that we would learn about your sovereignty, learn about your faithfulness, learn about your love, and that that would give us assurance That would give us comfort. That would give us confidence with whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in today. And Father, thank you that you hear our cries. That when we suffer, when we mourn, when we grieve, when we hurt, we are not alone. You hear our cries. You see us. You know us. Father, remind us of that day in and day out. But also remind us that the only reason we have any right to lift our cries up to you to begin with is because of what Christ has done for us. It's his broken body and shed blood on the cross that makes us your people. Because we're not descendants of Abraham. 
But Father, because of what Christ has done for us, we are your people by faith. And because of what Christ has done for us, you hear our cries. And through what Christ has done for us, you have addressed already our heaviest burden. You have already addressed the most significant bitterness of our lives, and that is the problem of sin. You've reconciled us to yourself through his body, through his blood, and for that we're grateful. And so, Father, be with us in the weeks ahead as we continue to read the book of Exodus. May we read it in a way that builds us up and ultimately glorifies you. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.